Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Tom, today's host, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Jack No about his recent book, Out 2021, with Louisiana State University Press, contesting commemoration, the 1876 Centennial, Independence Day, and the Reconstruction Era South. Contesting Commemoration examines how debates surrounding the bitterly contested commemoration of the 100th anniversary of American independence served as a performative expression of post-Civil War American nationalism, as well as a rhetorical proxy utilised by the White South to reject any immediate or unconditional re-embrace of that nationalism. To introduce my guest, Dr. Jack No is a teaching fellow at Queen Mary University of London and also lectures at Durham University, both in the UK. A native of Birmingham, Alabama, but a longtime resident of the UK, he earned his PhD from the University of Leeds in 2018. Welcome, Dr. No. Um, in traditional New Books Network, first question, fashion. Could you tell us a bit about how you came to studying American history and particularly studying the 1876 centennial? Held 11 years after Appomattox and seven years after the conclusion of the Civil War, just to place this for our listeners, you write that this event was inescapable, attracting 10 million visitors, one-fifth of America's population at the time. That's a remarkable um, number. So yeah, how did you come to studying this topic and what does the centennial offer us um, um, in looking at Reconstruction and this era of American history? Right. Well, thank you. Uh, it's really nice to be here with you. Um, the project started out as something much broader. Um, I, I was interested in how ex-Confederates and sort of the generation just generations just, just beyond them kind of reconciled their identity as Americans with the fact that they had left the United States, formed their own country, in effect. Um, so I kind of envisioned a project that spanned up basically through the lifetime of people who had lived in the 1860s. Um, and the sort of early drafts of the, of the project took as a starting point this book called I'll Take My Stand, which was published, you know, it was published in 1930 by a group of uh, Southern academics calling themselves the uh, what were they? the new agrarians, and their sort of stated purpose was this is a quote from them to defend a Southern way of life against what may be called the American or prevailing way. I just thought that was really interesting, um, and and wanted to explore you know this this kind of tension between the Southern way and the American way. Um, and I initially sort of saw a section on Reconstruction um, as just sort of laying the groundwork for a project that would span much further into the future. Um, but as often happens, um, you know, focus changes and, and narrows down. So in 2012, I spent some time at Penn State and on a, I, I took a sort of side trip to Philadelphia and decided to check out the city archives there to see what they had on the centennial. So the records of the U.S. Centennial Commission are kept at the archives there in Philadelphia. So this was the organization that was uh, responsible for planning and funding um, the centennial. I sh maybe should say that the centennial was um, the first World's Fair held in the United States. Um, it was kind of a big deal. I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, it, it was a big World's Fair held to celebrate 100 years of American independence. Um, and, you know, part of the reason it's so interesting to me is that it this happens only a decade after the end of the Civil War. So 
turned out that the uh, records of the U.S. Centennial Commission were really copious. Um, there were boxes and boxes of material there, and it was very, very useful to me. Um, but on this particular first visit, um, I came across this accordion file, and it was a file holding correspondence between this Centennial Commission and officials in various states of the Union. So the first compartment in this file I looked at was Alabama, because it was that's where I'm from, and it was the first one, and it was empty. There was no correspondence there. Um, now, there was tons of stuff, uh, tons of correspondence there for the northern states, and quite a bit less for the other southern states. As I said, there was none for Alabama. Um, so that was really interesting. Someone in this commission had also kept scrapbooks uh, with newspaper clippings about the centennial from around the country. And these were these scrapbooks were arranged geographically, which is really helpful to me. And it was reading this correspondence, the sort of limited correspondence that was there between the, the commissioners and the southern officials, and looking at these newspaper clippings it made me sort of realize this was a real flashpoint um, and that I had a whole project right there. Um, and that kind of ties into the, the fact that it was a re it was really in 1875, 1876, this, this fair was everywhere. It was inescapable. Um, and that is, I think that's the key reason it says it can say so much about how people at the time felt about the United States. So every newspaper was absolutely full of the centennial. Um, there were lists of local people going there. Um, there were train timetables time for excursions to Philadelphia, not only from places around you know, the Northeast, but from the South. There was, you know, uh, there were fairs, um, adverts for, you know, come come to the fair. And there were, again, what I found most interesting, there were accounts from people who had been there, just normal visitors and also reporters reporting on what was going on there. And I'm going to read from one just briefly here. This is from Richmond, Virginia. And a reporter from Richmond uh, recounted that a more magnificent scheme was never gotten up in any city in these modern times. To describe all or even a part of what is to be seen there is e in even slight detail would take days, weeks, even months. There is such a variety of every conceivable product from all parts of the world that the mind becomes confused in attempting to enumerate them. It is almost futile to attempt even a formal description of what's to be seen. All I have to say is come, see, and be satisfied. If you've got the money, all right, come. If not, borrow it. It will pay you to go into debt rather than not see the Arabian Nights of modern times. If worse comes to worse, buy a walking excursion ticket and start up the railroad track on foot. At any rate, come, for you may live a hundred years and still never see anything like it. So... It was a very big deal. Uh, it, it was. It was just. It, it was inescapable. I've used that word a couple of times now, but it was. Um, and the book has several sort of uh, instances of newspapers sort of poking fun at sort of centennial mania, centennial madness. Um, my favorite was Mr. Snodgrass, who pushed his wheelbarrow from Wisconsin to Philadelphia. <laughs> um, but the the fair was important on more than one level. Um, so it was, as I said, it was the first American World's Fair. It was the first in a series of these, these exhibitions 
um, that became really popular in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, they exhibited technological wonders, historical artifacts, and they brought the world to these people in ways that I think is kind of hard to appreciate now. But the, the Centennial Exhibition had another meaning, um, and that's what the book is really concerned with, and that is the abstract idea of it, what it represented. Um, and this was something that existed apart from you know, a bunch of buildings set on 284 acres in Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. Um, and what my book is really about is how people, particularly white Southern people and to some extent African-Americans, how they reacted to this project in ways that were analogous to their feelings about the United States, about the Union. Great. Thank you. That's a remarkable quote you've drawn out for us there. I really appreciate that. Um, and talking things I really appreciated, we were discussing before we came on air just how deeply engaged this is with this extensive scholarship we've seen in recent years, particularly on memory within the American South. Folks like David Blight, Caroline, Janney, um, Gregory Downs, Brucey Baker, and W. Fitzhugh Brondage, um, among a million other names. Um, with J.D., um, you point to, quote, the lacunae between reunion and reconciliation, that's on page 11, that existed far into the 20th century, understanding 1876, this centennial, as a moment kind of of pragmatism, flexibility, particularly from these white southerners. Um, what does your book what does your book say to this broader scholarship? How does your book intervene in these broader understandings of reunion, reconciliation, and memory in the American South? Well, I think it really builds on the work of people like Caroline Janey, um, going a bit further back, David Blight. Um, I'd also mention Robert Cook, um, who wrote a really great book uh, on Civil War memory. Um, and I think where, where this book really kind of... Um, has something to say is it points out um, some specific sort of correlations between attitudes to the uh, these commemorations and the idea of sort of reunion reconciliation. Um, and one of the points I want to make is that you know there is a distinction between reunion and reconciliation that lacune <laughs> that I talked about. Um, and one thing that really jumped out at me was how deeply tied people's reactions were to politics. Um, and you can and you can correlate these two divisions within, um, I'll say within the Democratic Party in the South. So, one of the people I quote was uh, Admiral Raphael Semmes, a Confederate uh, admiral, um, and in arguing against Alabama's participation in the Centennial Exhibition, he wrote uh, he wrote to the Mobile Register newspaper. He said. Will you dare admit by the presence of your representatives at Philadelphia on the 4th of July, 1876, that those who sleep in their bloody winding sheets were rightly branded by the United States as insurrectionists and rebels? And there was a lot, I found a lot more um, sort of of that tenor, a lot, a lot more things along those lines of people who just had a visceral revulsion uh, for anything to do with Yankees, anything to do with celebrating the United States. Um, and that was, again, that was representative of a significant segment of the white Southern population. Um, but you mentioned pragmatism a minute ago, uh, and that ties into another element here, and that is white Southerners who were more open to, I guess you might say, ostensible 
reconciliation. Um, and that a good a good example of that is um, a piece that appeared in a Memphis newspaper um, from the West Tennessee Centennial Commission. I should just point out there were all sorts of different Centennial Commissions. There was the national one. There were state commissions and there were local commissions. They got really complicated. Um, but this West Centennial, oh, sorry, West Tennessee Centennial Commission wrote in a Memphis newspaper um, that. The, their region would see what they called manifold benefits from centennial participation. Um, and that if Memphis and the surrounding area was well represented at Philadelphia, then this is a quote, men of capital and genius and activity and force will come and dwell among us from all parts of the earth to share our industrial advantages, to develop our material wealth and to make us rich and powerful and great. So, this was the real battle over the centennial in the white South. It was between those who saw it as a Yankee humbug. That was a phrase that came up uh, quite a lot. Um, and those who thought that the South or their state or their town should get their cut of whatever economic benefits might be had from this exhibition. Um, so if we're thinking about how ex Confederates and maybe the generation just after them, um, thought about themselves in relation to the Union, uh, to the United States. I think looking at how these people engaged with these commemorations that were all about Americanness highlights that lacunae um, that really existed between political reunion and genuine reconciliation. Great. And to maybe kind of talk more about the consequences of that kind of half-heighted, um, practical, pragmatic compromise. Um, Chapters one and two um, of this book were really effective, kind of summation about debates about Confederate nationalism. How does the Confederacy sit alongside American nationalism? Um, you argue, quote, that white Southerners alternatively shunned or engaged selectively and conditionally with celebrations of American nationhood um, in a manner that left Southern distinctness, this idea of Southern regionalism, um, affirmed rather than challenged. I just want to press you maybe what were the consequences of, again, this half-hearted reconciliation without concession for both the centennial event in 1876 and the American South going into the late 19th century um, with all the consequential um, events of that time that we all know too well about? Okay, well, I mean, the immediate consequences for the centennial exhibition itself was uh, an almost complete lack of official Southern involvement. Again, there were Southern visitors going there. Um, but the idea had been for every state uh, to have its own building and own exhibit at the Centennial. Um, but only two, Arkansas and Mississippi, were actually represented there. Um, longer term consequences were, I think, kind of more significant. Um, I think the lost cause, the idealization of the Old South, um, you know, leading to that cliched idea that the South lost the war but won the peace. Um, and that reunion that David Blight talked about that came about at the expense of Black Americans and, and an emancipatory memory of the war. Um, I think you might go on to say that for a further consequence was sort of the monolithic democracy, um, democracy with a big capital D um, in the South, the fact that it became a democratic uh, political monolith 
and Jim Crow is a consequence of that. Yeah, I think that's great, great. And kind of bit as a comparative case study, of course, attitudes to the celebration vary, particularly by race. Um, if white Southerners approach the centennial reluctantly and with a certain degree of skepticism, um, African Americans really embraced upon it to express and celebrate and affirm their Americanism. Um, you note, for example, quote, African Americans thus celebrated the fourth and their citizenship because of Reconstruction, while white Southerners' re-embrace of it was predicated on Reconstruction's revocation. That seems quite an important point. Um, what did these celebrations look like, these African American celebrations of the centennial? Um, and how did they work to legitimize black claims to the fourth and American identity? Okay, well, they looked like, I guess, on the surface, every other 4th of July celebration going back to the beginning. The 4th of July celebrations had a very sort of standard sort of standard template for um, how they looked. You know, there would be um, there would be picnics, there would be processions, there would be toasts, lots of toasts. Um, there would be food, um, there would be firecrackers. It was the content of what was said that, that differed. Um, David Wallstriker is really good. I mean, that was one of the earliest things I read thinking about the fourth. He talks about how um, back in the, you know, around 1800, Federalists and Democrat Republicans had completely separate Fourth of July celebrations, you know, in the same towns. And that's what was going on during the Reconstruction era. Um, well, I should, I should uh, caveat that by saying that um, there weren't really white Democratic celebrations until the mid-70s. So these black uh, and Republican celebrations, they, they were, they, they, those two things overlapped. Um, they were very political. Um, again, the form was, uh, you know, recreational fun, but the content of what was being said during the toasts and the speeches was extremely political um, and focused very much on loyalty to the Republican Party, um, focused very much on stressing the fact that black Americans were full citizens and that they needed to, um, you know, claim that citizenship. A black politician called um, Stamps, it was his name, um, I quote in the book a speech that he made in Louisiana um, in, I think it was 1875. Um, and what Stamps says to his audience is, the colored people of the South today constitute a large part of the lawmaking power the sovereignty of these states, all of us being voters, and all of us both can and must see to it that the great boon of freedom shall be held as a priceless gem, never, never to be lost, guarded as the Christian does his soul. See to it, first of all, that your suffrage is loyal, that this flag is never tarnished by our vote, that no ballot of ours belie the gratitude we owe the republic in freedom. So what he's saying there is vote Republican. Um, you know, loyal suffrage means loyalty to the Republican Party. Um, and there's a lot, if you read the white press, uh, white Southerners, Democrat, white Democrats were very contemptuous of these black and Republican Fourth of July celebrations. Um, very disdainful, um, really belittling uh, accounts that you can read of, of these. Um, it's also just kind of going back to the centennial celebration, uh, the centennial exhibition 
um, it's quite dispiriting to read the correspondence between the National Centennial Commission, the people that were organizing this fair, and Black Americans who were attempting to, again, use the fair to make a statement about their citizenship. Um, although there were some attempts by the National Centennial Commission to kind of woo white Southerners to get them more involved, um, they really didn't have much interest in um, uh, assisting any kind of black presence at the fair. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, really, really interesting that um, you talked a bit there about Democrats, Republicans, the party political aspect um, of this all. And perhaps one of the most interesting parts of this work for me were the concluding sections, uh, chapter four, five, six, um, where you talk about how the commemoration intersected and provided a space and a vehicle to express these Republican Democratic um, conflicts. Um, and you conclude that anti-Fourth arguments from white Southerners, um, as I recall, um, quote, largely dried up by 1876, given the much anticipated overthrow of 16 years of Republican rule, let's remember, during that year's presidential election, um, which I believe was Rutherford B. Hayes for the, for the Republicans versus um, Samuel Tilden for the Democrats. I'm getting nods. Good. I'm glad I got that right. Um, after all these contestations, after all these arguments, given this kind of fiercely contested and really complicated election of 1876 um yeah what did southern commemorations of 1876 ultimately look like and how how did they express these party political conflicts in the end result right um well the biggest difference that you see in 1876 is that white southerners again are starting to celebrate july 4th again um and Again, in researching this and, and sort of reading newspaper accounts of these celebrations, there was a variety of sort of explanations given. I, I, there were some where it was quite blatant. Um, we are celebrating because we have regained control. Democratic political control has been restored. Some were kind of more coy. There were that's probably the most common uh sort of refrain was that um, one, it was from a, a Georgia newspaper said that, uh, well, we've started celebrating again. And the actual quote was reason for reasons of a sensitive nature. We had not been celebrating before, but now we are. Um, and one thing that I found really interesting was the New York, the New Orleans uh, Picayune newspaper uh, in 1875, it had sort of very boldly stated that the 4th of July is a day we do not celebrate. And on July 3rd, 1876, the Picayune told its readers, this is a quote, the observance of the great national holiday is an invariable custom with the Picayune. Therefore, there will be no e evening edition issued from this office on the 4th. Um, so white Southerners, white Democrat, Democratic Southerners were starting to re-engage with the 4th um, by 1876. And again, this is directly related to um, what these Southerners called redemption, you know, the restoration of local democratic state and local democratic political uh, control. Um, but again, the form of these celebrations was the same as it had always been. Again, picnics, toasts, fried chicken, firecrackers. Um, there's a, um, a piece I quote from a Memphis newspaper describing 4th of July in that city in 1876. And they talk about a cannon being used, um, shoot cannon being shot off. And this cannon was called the Little Democrat. Um, so the paper says, 
the little gun barked sharp and loud all over the city, amusing a majority of the people and making a few angry. Those few would be Republicans. Um, but those few were unpatriotic people who could not appreciate the musical notes made by a cannon. The little Democrat will celebrate a Democratic county victory in August and a Democratic presidential victory in November. Um, now, there wasn't a presidential victory, Democratic victory in November. Um, but again, the feeling I got that was that the state and local control was more important to these people. Obviously, they wanted Tilden to win, um, but they were happy enough uh, to have regained control at the state level. Um, but that um, reference, that description of the little Democrat booming and, and making a few people angry was really typical. Uh, I found loads and loads of uh, accounts like that uh, around the South on the 4th, for the 4th of July, 1876. At this point, I might just want to say how fantastic these period newspapers are uh, for understanding how people thought and what they did um, in these times. Um, I so much of my my research was based on these newspapers and it was just i it was invaluable and i would also give a sh an unpaid shout out to newspapers.com um which i found I, I couldn't do without it um and you go down you read something really you find something really valuable really useful and then you see something else on the page and you go down a rabbit hole following something completely unrelated um but i did i found that a lot i found that just 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 essential um, but back on topic, uh, sort of all these accounts, um, celebrating, uh, linking sort of celebration of the fourth and commemoration to the restoration of democratic political control to me really demonstrated how very conditional white Southern engagement with the centennial and with the 4th of July was. And I think that highlights um, the almost total lack of genuine reconciliation um, that accompanied the political reunion of the North and South. Wonderful. That's a powerful conclusion, particularly ahead of the 250th anniversary, which is, um, what, two years away now? Two, three years away? Um, the sesquicentennial, I'm told it's delightfully called. Um, we'll be interested to see if those debates um, continue. Um, and yeah, on the newspaper's notes, I'll just add here, if any of our listeners are at all interested in newspaper culture, particularly within the South during this era, this book mines that archive extensively and to great effect. Um, so yes, if anyone's interested in the world of newspapers and editing and publishing at this point, this is a fantastic resource to look into. Um, Dr. No, just to add a final question, um, always a difficult one, always a challenging and pressing one. Some people don't like it. Um, but what's next for you, uh, your teaching, your research um, in the new year? That's a good question. Um, and the answer is, I'm not sure. Um, teaching is what I'm focused on right now because I I love teaching. Um, I've got, at some point, uh, I'm going to make use of a pile of sources that I accumulated during this research. And it has to do with black Democrats in the South in the 1870s. Um, there was there were a few really interesting figures. One of them was named Garland White. 
and he had been enslaved by Robert Toombs, who was, um, I think he was in Buchanan's cabinet, and then he was also in the, the Confederate cabinet, but he was a big shot in the Confederacy anyway. Um, this Garland White had been enslaved by him. Um, he, I don't know if he escaped or was, I think he escaped. Um, and then he was a, a chaplain in, uh, I think, a black regiment in the Union Army. But then, then he was, but he was very prominent in black democratic circles, which weren't, they weren't, those weren't very expansive circles, um, but they were there. Um, and what I found really interesting was I found um, a lot of material from white Democrats who were very excited to, <laughs> to come across these black Democrats and I think they found it very useful, I guess, maybe in a PR sense uh, to to kind of capitalize or exploit uh, these these black men. But I think I think this this it's interesting to sort of ponder what these guys were getting out of, uh, you know, fealty to the Democratic Party in the 1870s. So, yeah, at some point. I'll do something with that. Completely, completely. We record two weeks before Christmas. So it's always an exciting time to dream up these fresh new projects. Um, that sounds really interesting. Um, while well, the best of luck with it, and we hope to follow your research going forward. Um, so yeah, Dr. No, thank you so much for being with me here today. Um, again, contesting commemoration, colon, the 1876 Centennial Independence Day and the Reconstruction Era South, out now with Louisiana State University Press. Uh, thank you, Dr. No, for your time today. And thank you to all our listeners for listening. Thank you. Thank you.